Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, My father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? to the teaching, and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth 
But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Joshua. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We've been in Isaiah for multiple months now. We took a short break for the, for the Sola series, but we've been in Isaiah for a while. And I think that, that where we are right now fits wonderfully and beautifully into this Advent season that we're in. This holy seed that was mentioned in chapter 6 and expanded on in chapter 7, and I'm going to expand on in chapter 8, and Joshua is going to, to talk about in chapter 9, leads us into the coming of Jesus Christ in a beautiful and wonderful way for the Advent season. But I don't assume that all of you are familiar with where we are in the book of Isaiah, and I assume that, that, that things can get jumbled from week to week, so I want to do a little bit of a recap. I want to look at what's going on so far in Isaiah. So previously in Isaiah, he's preaching between about 640, or sorry, 740 and 690 BC over several decades. That that vision that he saw in the temple was in about the year 740. And Isaiah 1 through 5 have served as a backdrop or a background for the kind of ministry that Isaiah is entering into. What I mean by that is it kind of unfolds, those five chapters unfold and kind of lay bare all of Israel's sins. They focus, it focuses particularly on three sins, though there are certainly more than this. But number one, the people of Israel are idolaters. Idolatry is rampant in the land. They are worshiping other gods other than the Holy One of Israel. Number two, they are unjust to their fellow Israelites and to sojourners in their lands. Instead of loving God and loving neighbor, they are oppressing people for their own gain and benefit. And in the midst of this, they're going through the motions of worship. Religious ritualism is what this is called. But there's no real heart change. Week to week, they're offering their sacrifices. They're coming on their feast days. But there's no heart or internal change whatsoever. And so God says he's hiding his eyes. He says that he can't stand their feasts anymore. This is strong language. It's like God saying to us, stop coming to church on Sunday. It makes me sick. That's what he says to the people of Israel with their polluted sacrifices and their hearts that haven't changed. And it's in the midst of this that Isaiah is called in Isaiah chapter 6. When he sees that vision of the glory of God filling the temple, and the seraphim are singing, holy, 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 right? And the whole earth is filled with his glory. And in this moment, Isaiah realizes who he is, and he realizes from where he comes. And he says, "Uh uh-oh, oh no, I am undone. That's not a good thing, right? He realizes his plight. He is a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. He understands who he is in light of who God is. And Isaiah's message is going to be a message. He's called in the midst of this, in the midst of all of these sins, realizing who he is and the people that he's ministering to, who they are. And he realizes that his message is going to be a message of judgment 
and a message of hardening. He's going to speak to people who can't see and who can't hear, who don't understand what he's saying, and they're going to be judged. And just when we thought that it was over, they're going to be judged again. His message really follows the, the, the message of the prophets, which is that Israel and Judah, they've broken the covenant. They've broken the covenant with their God, and they need to repent. And if there isn't going to be repentance, there's going to be judgment. And that judgment is going to come in the form of exile for the north through Assyria, who we're going to see today. And then for the south, Judah, who is going to come, or for the south of Judah, it's going to come through Babylon, who is going to be seen, well, about a hundred years from, from where we are in our text, a little bit more than a hundred years. But there's hope. There's going to be hope beyond that judgment. At the end of Isaiah 6, the holy seed is where Isaiah taught, is where God tells Isaiah is the source of their hope. And in chapter 7, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, just a little bit further north than Israel, they've come against Judah. The two kings of those nations, they've come against Ahaz, the king of Judah, and they're going to go to war with him in Judah. And Ahaz, the people of God, they have not set their hope or their trust in God. But instead, they've set their hope and their trust in Assyria and in the king of Assyria. And God goes to Ahaz through Isaiah the prophet and says, Ahaz, don't set your hope in Assyria. Instead, ask for a sign and I'll give it to you. Whatever you want. And Ahaz has a false piety. This idolatrous king who burned his children at the altar says, I won't ask the Lord for a sign. I won't put him to the test. This isn't a real piety. And God says, even though you won't weary me, right? Ask me for a sign. I will give you a sign anyway, whether you like it or whether you want it or not. And that sign will be that a young woman, a virgin, shall bear a son. And his name shall be Emmanuel. Josh talked about this text last week. And he gave us an interpretation of this text, which I'm going to recap in just a moment. And, and while this child is ultimately going to be about Jesus, read Matthew chapter 1, right? There is a child who's going to be born in our text today in Isaiah chapter 8, who is the sign for Ahaz and who is the sign for Judah and the people that God is with them. This is how prophecy often works. Josh called it double fulfillment. But what happens in prophecy is we don't seem to realize this. And prophecy is a tricky genre for us to interpret for a couple of reasons. One, because we usually read it with like a newspaper in hand or something like that. It's usually not very helpful. But two, we don't understand that the prophets were speaking to their day and age. He was giving, the prophets were giving the people of Israel and the people of Judah a message of obedience here and now where they were drawing the people back to covenant faithfulness with God to repent and be restored. And so what's happened is Ahaz is told to ask for a sign and he's going to be given a sign, but then there's going to be something that happens later, much, much later, that's going to be the ultimate fulfillment of that passage. So this kind of, this kind of understanding of prophecy is, is what Deuteronomy 18 talks about. When Moses is saying, how will we know if the prophet is somebody that you sent? And Deuteronomy 18 says, well, if the prophet makes a prophecy and it doesn't come true, 
then don't fear that prophet. Their prophecy wasn't from the Lord, right? They've prophesied in vain. Well, that understanding of prophecy actually has some implications. If you can tell a true or a false prophet by whether what they prophecy comes true or not, their prophecies actually have to come true sometime in the near future, don't they? Not in like hundreds and hundreds of years. That's not how prophecy often works. So a good example of this, and I'm not going to go through the whole text, is 1 Kings chapter 13, where this unnamed prophet gives a prophecy about Josiah coming. And he's prophesying in the 900s BC, and Josiah isn't going to come for about 300 years later. And he says, guess what? This prophet is, or the son of David is going to come, right? And so you'll know that 300 years from now, that the son of David is going to come this day, I'll give you a sign that this is going to happen. And I think that this is what's happening in Isaiah 7 and in Isaiah 8. This virgin who shall conceive and bear a son is ultimately about Jesus. But Ahaz and the people of Judah have a sign for their day. And it's going to be this Maharshalal Hashbaz that Joshua just read about. Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 8 are connected thematically. And the child born in 8 is the partial fulfillment of 7.14. That the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Right? In fact, that language is used in chapter 7. She shall conceive and bear a son. And then it says, and she conceived and bore a son. In 7.14, the son is named Emmanuel. In 8.8 and 8.10, it uses that exact Emmanuel language to describe this time period. In 7.15 and 16, the child shall eat curds and honey before he knows how to refuse evil and do good. In 8.4, before the child knows how to cry, my mother and my father is paralleled to that. In 7.16 and 8.4, we see that the wealth of Damascus and Syria is carried off. And in 7.17 through 20 and in 8.4 through 7, we see that this judgment is going to come through Assyria. These, these texts parallel each other. And in 8.18, Isaiah's children are referred to as signs, just like the sign that was promised in 7.11 and 7.14. So all of that was mentioned last week, and that's just some recap. But what I want to do is I want to share the big idea of the text, and then I want to go into to two main sections that this text falls in. First, the big idea. God provides his people with a sign of hope and judgment through the birth of a son. This sign shows God's holy presence among his people who should fear and seek him because he is their sanctuary. I'm not as concise as Josh, sorry. That's what I thought the main message was, so I had to get it all in there. It's like an old Puritan book title. I'll, I'll give it again. God provides his people a sign of hope and judgment through the birth of a son. This sign shows God's holy presence among his people who should fear and seek him because he is their sanctuary. And this is going to unfold in really two parts. The first one is going to be in 8, 1 through 10. This is going to be the first main oracle. And in this section, we're going to see that Isaiah's son, Maharshal Hashbaz, is a sign of hope and judgment. And then in the second section, verses 11 through 22, we're going to see that there's a warning not to walk like the people, but to honor God as holy. By fearing him, because God's presence brings judgment and salvation. 
So in 8, 1 through 10, Isaiah's son, Maharshal Hashbaz, is going to be a sign of hope and judgment. 8, 1. Then the Lord said to me, take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to, to Maharshal Hashbaz. And I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah, to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Maharshal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry my, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloah that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, the kings of Syria and Israel, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many. The waters of that river are the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outstretched wing, outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us, Emmanuel. Note here, if you've been following along, the shift to first person in the first verse there. We'd been in third person in the previous chapter, and there's this, this shift which personalizes this chapter. And in this shift, the Lord, Yahweh, commands Isaiah to write a prophecy that is viewable and obvious in some way, in common characters that can be seen, and he writes on it what God tells him to, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, which Josh talked about last week, which means something like speedy to the, to the, to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Right? It's these four words together. And he's writing this so that people can see it because he's making a prophecy that's about to come true. The prophecy relates to both the child's name and to the impending Assyrian invasion. So Assyria is about to come in and sweep through Aram, or Syria, and Israel, the northern kingdom. And he gets two publicly known witnesses, a priest, Uriah, and possibly uh, Ahaz's father-in-law, Zechariah, to view this so that they can say, this isn't prophecy after the fact. Isaiah actually said these things before they happened. So what Isaiah then does is, he, he goes and he visits his wife and he knows her, right? He went into the prophetess and she conceived and she bore a son. This is Isaiah's wife. And the Lord tells Isaiah to name the child Mahar Shalal Hashbaz, just like Isaiah had just prophesied. So this child is born as a sign for the people of Judah and as a sign for Ahaz, the king of Judah. When the child is still very young, the king of Assyria is said will, it is said will plunder, right? That, that word, that, 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 the name Maharshal Hasbaz, he will plunder the spoil of Syria and Israel. He's going to come and he's going to wipe out these kings. Ahaz and Judah have nothing to fear. This coalition of forces that's coming against them will not stand. 
The Lord then speaks to Isaiah a second time in verse 5 there. And like at the end of Isaiah 7, the child is a sign of both hope and of judgment or destruction. The people of Judah are going to rejoice in the judgment of Syria and Israel. Right, These two kings, he's, he's going to rejoice in them. And they're going to put their trust in Assyria when their trust should actually be from God. They reject trusting in God, and instead, they put their trust in man. Note how he, he talks about this. They've rejected the gentle waters of Shaloah, the stream that provides water for Jerusalem, and they've trusted in the flooding torrent of Assyria that won't be contained by Syria or Israel, but will sweep well beyond their borders and basically go all the way up to the neck of Judah. Right? So, so they're trusting in this foreign power to deliver them instead of God to deliver them, and it's ultimately actually going to devastate them. It's going to almost drown them. So think of those images of the floods that we saw after the hurricanes in Houston or in Florida, right? This is the picture of the king of Assyria who they're putting their trust in. He is turbulent. This is not someone you want to vest your trust in. In verse 7, there's a statement about the glory of this king of Assyria, and I think it's ironic there. Right? They're going to see the glory of this king of Assyria. This glory, I think, is, is compared to the glory of the Lord of hosts, who we saw just a couple of chapters before in Isaiah chapter 6, who fills the whole earth. This king of, of Assyria is nowhere, nowhere close to the glory of the God of Israel. But they're trusting in the glory of this king instead of the glory of the great king, the Lord of hosts. And while Judah will escape ultimate judgment from Syria and Israel, they're not going to escape Assyria unscathed because God will judge them through Assyria. But there's also hope that in Emmanuel's land, the nations who plot in vain, right? Where he says he breaks into poem there in verses 9 and 10. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it's not going to come to anything. Speak a, year, speak a word, but it shall not stand, for God is with us. Their counsel, all of the, all of the, the plotting of these nations will come to nothing. This judgment of Assyria and the nations will actually happen in the chapters to come. This is a theme that Isaiah is going to pick on in just a few chapters. But their plans will come to nothing. They're very much pictured like Psalms chapter 2, where the nations are raging against the king of God, and their plans plans are in vain. So in the midst of this, in the midst of this text, where... God is giving a sign of hope and judgment through Isaiah's son, Maharshal Hashbaz. I think there are a few things that we need to kind of focus on here in way of application. The first one is is that people put their trust in man and not in God. Josh talked about this last week, but it's still the point of our text today. Ahaz and the people trusted in Assyria instead of trusting in the Lord of the heavenly armies. They trusted in the poor, pitiful glory of Assyria 
over against the glory of Yahweh. We may look at this and we may think that they are fools. But I would bet that we do the same thing. Have you found yourself in a situation recently where you know that you should be seeking the Lord, but instead you saw a human solution to your problem? I bet this happened to you yesterday, if you're like me. Something is happening in your life, something is going on, and instead of seeking God, the first place that you go is to a human solution. Somewhere other than the sovereign, providential Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. You've done this, and you're in good or maybe bad company. This is a theme throughout Scripture, isn't it? Jeremiah, a prophet who will come about 100 years after Isaiah, talks about in Jeremiah chapter 17, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength. Does anybody know how he describes that person? They are like a shrub in the desert. They're like a a shrub in the wilderness in a salty, parched land. I think we know what that looks like. We live in Phoenix. The person who trusts in man as their strength, who puts their trust in flesh, even if it's yourself, they're like one of those little, pathetic, pitiful shrubs in the middle of the desert. But then you know what Jeremiah does after he talks about that man who trusts in man? He talks about blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And he basically quotes Psalm 1. Where he says that person is like a tree planted by streams of water. That person can't be shaken even in a time of drought. Why? Well, because their sustenance comes from the Lord. If you put your trust and your hope in yourself or in anyone else, you are a desertish shrub. If you put your trust in the Lord, you are like a a tree planted by streams of water. When we're left to ourselves, this is what we do, isn't it? We put our our trust in ourselves or in, in human systems or in others. We need a shift in perspective. We need to change the way that we think. Ahaz and Judah found themselves in a difficult situation. I'm not in any way undermining that. A situation that I think in the 21st century, we have a really hard time imagining or understanding because of the comfort of our lives. These are a people who are besieged by their brothers, Israel, the northern kingdom, and who have made a coalition with foreigners in the people of Syria. Their ultimate goal was to get out of trouble by whatever means necessary. And when that is our goal, we will inevitably make sinful and foolish choices. We will make unwise decisions when our goal is to escape the time of trouble and nothing else. Our goal is not to be more comfortable, but to be faithful. Remember Isaiah 7. What Isaiah through the Lord, or what the Lord through Isaiah told to Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, You will not be firm at all. God calls us to faithfulness. And instead of faithfulness, note what the people do. The people rejoice in the judgment of others, Israel and Syria, assuming that it means their own safety. Our enemies are going to be destroyed, so therefore everything must be well with us. 
What they put their trust in, since it is not the Lord, ultimately is going to lead to their judgment and downfall. So they think that all that they need to do to solve the problem is get rid of Syria, get rid of Israel through Assyria, and everything's going to be fine. Well, the means by which they seek to get rid of those two forces that are against them ultimately leads to their partial judgment. Judah put their trust in Assyria and rejoiced in the downfall of Israel. Their hope wasn't in God or his presence or his provision. It was in the judgment of others. What was the source of their hope literally became their downfall. Related to this, what does it look like when we encounter trouble from external sources? Is what we pray for, is it, is it just to be rid of it? Do we pray for our enemies like Jesus told us to? Do you go through life with the thought that if you could only prove this person wrong, then everything would be okay? Everything would finally fall into place. Do you look to the downfall of others as the vindication of your own righteousness? Do you pray for your enemies? What your heart looks like towards your neighbor says who you belong to and in whom you place your trust. Don't misunderstand me. The Psalms talk about the judgment of God's enemies as a sign of salvation and hope for his people, but that's when his people seek him. That's not what's happening in Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, they're not seeking the Lord. All they care about is the judgment of their enemies. There's a big difference between those two things. And we're going to see the judgment of the nations coming about in Isaiah 13 through the next several chapters after that, and it is going to be a source of rejoicing and salvation for the people of God. But if we aren't seeking the Lord and we don't have that understanding in mind, we're only looking for the defeat of others to be our sanctuary. In the midst of seeking worldly solutions, God tells them that there will be a day that comes in Isaiah chapter 19 when this nation that's going to overwhelm them and all of these other nations, these nations that were against the people of God like Egypt, their ancient foe, and Assyria, the nation that's about to truly wreak devastation throughout the land, that these enemies of God will cry out to God and God will hear them. He will give them a sign, it says in Isaiah chapter 19, and he will deliver them, Egypt and Assyria, and they will know the Lord and they will worship him. That is what the economy of God's sovereign plan for his kingdom looks like. Is that, what his, is that what your plan for your enemies looks like? That's what God's plan looks like for those who have taken counsel against him. And so as God provides this sign to his people by providing a son who serves as a sign of judgment and hope, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz is, Isaiah's, is in Isaiah's day this picture of God's dwelling presence among them. This sign should ultimately draw the people to himself. This sign that God is giving should draw the people back to God. But as we saw in chapter 6, they have no eyes to hear, no eyes to see, and no ears to hear. So God will one day 
send a greater, the great sign of his presence among his people in the advent of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which is what we're celebrating this season. God has sent the world the sign of his dwelling presence in their midst to call all peoples to himself. We need to have eyes to see and ears to hear his son. Not like the people, which is what happens in Isaiah 8, 11 through 22. In this section, we're going to see that Isaiah and the people of Judah are warned not to walk like the people, but they're supposed to honor God as holy by fearing him because God's presence brings judgment and salvation. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him, shall be, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many will stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me as signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this world, according to this word, It is because they have no dawn. There's no sunrise for them, right? They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged. They'll be hangry. And when, and they will speak contemptuously against their king and their God, and they will turn their faces upward. They will be haughty and arrogant. And they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's ominous, isn't it? Isaiah is warned to be different than the people who trust in conspiracies. And notice how he talks about those who are perpetuating these conspiracies. What do they do? They chirp and they mutter, right? They just kind of mindlessly babble is the picture that's given there. Instead of doing that, That's what the people do. Isaiah is told that he is supposed to honor God as holy. Why? Because God is not like the people. He is different than them. God should be their fear and their dread. What does this look like? Well, this looks like when Isaiah came into the presence of God in Isaiah 6. That's what to be in the fear and dread of God looks like. In the midst of this, God says that he is to be their fear and their dread because he is their sanctuary. That word is, is related to that word holy. He is like their holy dwelling presence in their midst. 
is kind of the feeling that that gives. He is their holy dwelling presence in their midst. Regard him as holy because he is this. Isaiah then says that contra to the people who chirp and mutter, he will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. Right? This this God who is their sanctuary has become a rock of stumbling, a trap, and a snare is what it says. But Isaiah will wait in him. And since the people are seeking, are not seeking or inquiring of the Lord, what is their outcome? How is that described? It's words like distress, darkness, gloom. And in case we miss darkness the first time, it's going to say thick darkness. And why is this their, why is this their end? Well, because of their arrogant, upturned faces. I got a really cheery text this morning. And as we look at this, I think that we, we see actually several exhortations from this text for us. One of them, Isaiah is told specifically, don't walk in the way of this people. Isaiah is warned that this people follow conspiracies. They actually do things that are specifically forbidden by God's word, right? Seeking out necromancers, right? Witches, right? Those who conjure the dead, God has explicitly forbidden this in multiple places in the, in the Old Testament. But this is what they do. They are against God. We have no need to follow the chirping and muttering and foolish advice of this world. Because we have a better and surer word through the Scripture and through God's Son. The words of the world are nothing the advice and the counsel and their chirpings and mutterings will pass away and perish. But God's word stands forever. Isaiah is going to talk about this late, much, much later in his book. And it is this word, the gospel of our salvation, that transforms us. The Christian life is, is called to be vastly different than the life of the person in the world. The difference is described in the New Testament as the difference between light and darkness. The difference between, and this is going to get a little bit awkward, children of God and children of the devil. That sounds weird to say in our age, doesn't it? Right? It doesn't, it doesn't seem right to say that some people are children of the devil. Well, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 8. In 1 John 2 and 3, John says, you're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil right? Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about these same things. Read Psalm 5. It is a mind-shattering psalm. The world is opposed to God. It has set itself up against God and His kingdom and His rule and His Son. And we have made peace with it. We have bought into its lies and schemes, but the words that the world mutters will fall flat and they offer no hope. It is the word of the gospel alone that is our hope in our salvation. And because of this great gospel, we are supposed to honor the Lord as holy, is what Isaiah says here. Isaiah says that the Lord is to be honored as holy because he is their sanctuary. He is their holy dwelling presence 
in their midst. He should be our sanctuary as well. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What does, what does your life look like? What are you doing right now intentionally to honor the Lord as holy in your life? When was the last time you thought of such a question? What can I do today to honor the Lord as holy? When you go about your day-to-day life, are you consistently seeking to honor the Lord as holy? Through a life that's characterized by being faithful to your covenant relationship with Him through His Son and by His Spirit? Or are you just trying to go about with as much ease as possible? The ground for honoring God as holy, as I've already said, is God's dwelling presence, His being their sanctuary, right? The, the dwelling presence that's in their midst. And many of us don't fully appreciate this. That's one thing to say that to Isaiah's time where they can look at kind of a, a physical temple and they can say that's God's, that's the manifestation of God's dwelling in our midst. But we in the New Covenant era actually have something much greater and something much stronger. We've not only seen, as the collective testimony of the saints, the coming of the Lord, but we also have God's Spirit dwelling inside of us And he has built us into a holy temple. God's spirit is dwelling inside of us. And that means that has implications. It should change the way that we live and the way that we think. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Don't you know this? God has given you His Spirit. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And then there's there's an implication of that. So he says, so glorify God in your body. God is our sanctuary, and He has chosen to take up residence in those who place their trust in Him not in the world. And not only are we to live holy, I don't want you to think that this is just some moralistic message of conformity that I'm preaching to you because it's not. Not only are we called to be holy, but brothers and sisters, you need to know that you are holy if you are one of his children. Christ has given you his righteousness. And when the father sees you, that is what he sees. And it is a wonderful, beautiful thing. We have, been, we have been bought at a price. The blood of Christ covers and cleanses us. The Holy Spirit clothes and indwells us. We are his holy people. Not our own holiness, but Christ's in us. And I want to end with, with an exhortation to this end. Isaiah says that he's going to wait on the Lord. He's not going to trust in these upturned faces and arrogant plans. And I want to talk about five things that we can do to trust in the Lord by fearing him. First, to fear God, you must know him. You must know him. Christian, 
drink deeply of God's Word. Be a person who is known to be thirsty and hungry for righteousness. If you are not a Christian, understand the gospel that is the salvation to all peoples. That we have broken relationship with God, but God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, came into this world to make us right with God. That we are called to repent and to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. I can talk more about that. I can talk more about that with you if you'd like, or Pastor Josh or one of the other elders or just somebody near you can talk about that with you. But in order to trust in God by fearing Him, we, to fear God, we must know Him. We must know Him. We cannot fear God without knowing Him. To fear God, we also must be instructable. Not indestructible, but instructable. I think I just made up a word there. But I can do that because I'm up here right now. So we must be willing to be instructed is what I mean by that. Listen to others who are godly, not those who chirp and mutter, please. Seek godly, solid relationships with godly people who will speak truth in love. Not people who will give you worldly advice that will amount to nothing. So to fear God, be instructable. Have a soft heart towards wise people of God. Three, to fear the Lord, you must be humble and not arrogant. Pride is antithetical to a holy life. Can you imagine if Isaiah in Isaiah 6 was just like, what's up, big guy? Right? Like fist bump, right? No, right? He hit the dirt, right? Right? When he encountered the divine, any semblance of pride was gone. It wasn't there at all. That's what it should be like for us if we truly know him. If we truly know him. Number four, to fear God, sorry, the fear of God will lead to self-realization and repentance. So those who fear God understand who they are in light of who God is like Isaiah did. They understand their low position, their humble position before this great and mighty Lord of hosts. And they repent. And they trust in Him and in Him alone because nothing else is worthy of putting our trust in. Everything else is foolish. So number five, the fear of God will chase away all pretenders and idols in our lives. If we know God and if we have encountered the divine through his son by his spirit, then anything else pretending to be of God will vanish because it is pathetic. It is the glory of the king of Assyria compared to the glory of the God of hosts. It is nothing. So this text ends with judgment and warning. It ends with darkness and gloom and deep darkness. And if we were ancient Israel in the 8th century BC, that would be our story. But brothers and sisters, we are not. 
We are not under the judgment and condemnation of the Mosaic covenant, but we are under the hope of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Emmanuel was a sign of hope and judgment in Isaiah's day, but we have the greater Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, our Lord, as our sign of salvation, that he has conquered the chirping and muttering of this world and has brought us peace with God the Father through the blood of his cross. So while our text ends in gloom and darkness, we're going to see that those who are far off next week are going to see a great light. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let us pray.